Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Those are my girls. That was eight years ago. I can't believe uh, that that's happened already. Unbelievable. Uh, if you didn't catch that uh, lyrics to that song, I don't know why you wouldn't have caught them all or anything. <laughs> Old Tom Turkey's got something to say. Help me find my feathers on Thanksgiving Day. The wind is blowing and I feel kind of chilly. Company's coming and I look real silly. How many of you feel like you're the turkey at Thanksgiving? Meaning like you're the one who looks silly. You're the one who looks foolish in the room. Uh, this Thursday morning, for those of you men or women who are interested in it, uh, we do a turkey bowl every year. And uh, it's over here across the street, uh, ECC, and we run around the field and act like fools and we have a great time. Thanksgiving uh, morning, a turkey bowl. Uh, that's something for my family uh, that we have done a number of times uh, as well. Uh, my parents are pretty young. I was born uh, when they were 20 years old, so really young uh, for both of them. And so uh, they've always wanted to kind of play sports with us and that type of thing. And so we've kind of had this turkey bowl thing a number of times. Uh, we visited my aunt who lives in uh, Tennessee, and we've gone there a few different times. And this was one where he had, like, all of a sudden there was all these, so I'm, I'm a boy and I've got three sisters, and I've always been kind of the king of the campus in regards to sports. And all of a sudden there's these in-laws start showing up. And suddenly I'm not the best football player on the field. And it's pretty tough to handle. Uh, 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 but really the reality is I get that competitive edge, that nature uh, from my mom. And so any time that we played the turkey bowl, uh, particularly this one year, my mom is super intense. I mean, crazy is really the best word. See, so what always happens anytime uh, we've played football as a family, like the family football game where like the three-year-old hikes the ball and everybody else, um, we have to make sure that my mom and dad are on the same team because if they are not, my mom will lay him out. <laughs> and my dad raced motocross when he was younger and stuff like that. He's got bad knees. He's, you know, like he just doesn't need to get tackled playing football in the backyard. But what, what ended up happening was my mom was racing up the sidelines, and as she was, she tried to, to juke around, and she literally dove herself into the bushes trying to juke around someone. And so that year, the joke around the family table was about my mom, the turkey at the table of like, man, you really need to take it back a notch. Um, so maybe some of you are the turkey uh, this morning. At that same house, a few years previous to that, uh, we played euchre. I don't know if you guys are euchre people, but there's a few of you who know what I'm talking about. It's a card game. Uh, I was a teenager at the time, and my uncle was up way ahead. He and his partner were going to beat us to smithereens. And I came back at the end and, and had a four-point move and won the whole deal. And he looked at me and he said, you cheated. And I swore up and down that I didn't, but I definitely cheated. There's no way that you ever would have gotten all of those cards in one hand all at one time. I was the dealer and I had dealt everything to my partner type of thing. And that year and years following, I have always, anytime I've sat at his dinner table, I'm the turkey. The reality is. And so um, I don't know what you're going to be coming to the Thanksgiving table with this year. 
uh, but really, sometimes those things that are funny at first, over time, are not funny anymore. And when you bring extended family together, there is a painful time of sitting around the table and trying to work through some of these issues uh, that are there. And so uh, maybe you're just like old Tom Turkey, and you just feel a little bit chilly. You feel a little bit out of place uh, coming to the Thanksgiving meal. Uh, maybe you're thinking, you know, this is not a great year. Uh, I just wrapped my car around a tree, or I just got dumped, or I just had this thing happen in our family. And it just is really hard to feel great about Thanksgiving, particularly there at the Thanksgiving table. You say, I'm the turkey. My contribution to this thing seems like I'm the one who's going to be assassinated and eaten if I come to the table. So forgive me if I'm not excited about Thanksgiving. Maybe that's where you are this morning. I showed that little clip at the beginning to just as a storyline for you to know. Uh, those are my two oldest girls, Delia and Hazel, and many of you have been praying for Hazel. And uh, the prayer for us as a family this year, I would say, and Hazel has used these words, and so I'll say it, that Hazel wants her happy back. And, um, and she, in that video, I don't know what on earth they kept touching each other for, but they just kept doing that. And like, there's just like that spark and we're looking for that to come back. But as we talk about Thanksgiving, we, we can't talk about being happy because happiness is circumstantial. What we really are looking for is joy. And so it's not happy people who are thankful, it's thankful people that are happy. That's your first note that's there if you take out your bulge, it's a white sheet of paper, help you travel through where the sermon is going this morning. It's not happy people who are thankful, it's thankful people that are happy because the root of their happiness is in joy that is not circumstantial. Today we're going to talk about how our mindset matters. I was watching a TED Talk this week. I don't know if any of you are interested in those, but I really enjoy just that five, ten minute uh, talk that sometimes really gets to the root of things. And this one was by uh, Dr. Aaliyah Crum. She's talking about a group of researchers in Italy and how they study the effects of thoracic surgery as a very invasive surgery. And if you have the muscles are cut in your back and, and a lot of, this is a very invasive thing. And so as they were studying this, they had two groups of patients that they worked with because about an hour after the surgery, after the anesthesia wears off, uh, all the patients are going to need morphine because the pain is tremendous. And in this study, what ends up happening is there are two groups. And the first group has a doctor come in, talk to the patient, and gives them a morphine dose there while they are there. The second group of patients does not have the doctor come in, but through a pump, there's a remote pump that when they need the dosage, they give them the dosage. And wouldn't you know it, the group that had the doctor come in and talk to them face to face felt better. The exact same dosage, the exact same amount to the other group of patients who didn't have the doctor come in and talk to them face to face felt little or no advantage of having the morphine in their drip. And so what was it about? Well, it's really a mindset difference between the first and the second. The person actually feels like they should feel better, and so they begin to feel better psychologically and physically beginning to feel better. And so they took their research and they started looking at other ways to use it as well. They went on with anxiety patients and Parkinson's disease and those type of things. And they found that when patients were aware, when patients were paying attention, that they were vastly improved results. Mindset matters. 
And today we're going to be talking about a ministry mindset. And so this is the second statement. When we have a ministry mindset, we will find joy when we look for opportunities to minister to others. We will find joy when we look for opportunities to minister and serve others. I had a professor who was our choir director. I was a music major in college, and he used to tell us, he said, there's no better way to forget your problems than to wear a pair of shoes that are tied too tight. No better way to forget the world's problems than wear a pair of shoes that were tied too tight. And then he would tell us, and when he'd look at us, the choir, and we're beginning to say, he said, some of your shoes are tied too tight. What are you so angry about? There's another one that he used to say was, swallow a live toad first thing in the morning, and nothing worse can happen to you for the rest of the day. A mindset shift. When we have a ministry mindset, we will find joy and thankfulness. So we're going to work through this morning. In the next few moments, I'm going to give you four mantras or four statements or four ideas that someone with a ministry mindset would be and should be saying. We're in the book of Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. We are in the sermon series we're on a sermon series that is going through the book of Nehemiah. If you're with us for the first time this morning, that's okay. I'll catch you up. Uh, Nehemiah is a great leader uh, who has brought people back into the land because they have to fix the wall. The wall around the city of Jerusalem is damaged. And so people are at risk because of this. And then once the physical wall is rebuilt, the realization is, okay, now people have to emotionally reconnect and see what's going on here. That why is God uh, working through his people, but his people are not responding. And so he's got to work with people's hearts and their minds. So there are broken walls, broken hearts. And so as we've made our way through this book, this is week 11 in this series. That's a little bit longer than we normally would go through a sermon series, but there's so much. This book is so rich. And next week we'll be finishing the book to see what God has to say in the final chapter of the book. But there are four mindset mantras that are four statements that I want you to consider this morning. So here's your first fill-in. This is coming out of Nehemiah chapter 11. The mindset that Nehemiah had was this. I want to love where I live. I want to love where I live. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people, they all commended those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Parentheses, though, now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, they lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. So they are looking around at the city. Now they've got the walls of the city have been built. We've celebrated now that the walls of the city have been built. And when they return from exile, the people, they look at the walls that have been torn down. There's all this rubble and previous destruction. They've rebuilt that and required a lot of work to do that. And they did it at an incredible rate. But this is, the, this is supposed to be the capital city. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And it's a major target for enemies to attack. And unless there's any activity going on there, even if the walls are built, nothing is going to ever happen there in that city. And it's just a matter of city redevelopment. If there's areas of a city, uh, even in modern day, that are reestablished and reset, unless there is some type of commerce, some type of activity, a grocery store, something put in the middle of that area so that people want to come back to it, you can build the best buildings, you can build the best infrastructure. There's no reason to be there 
and that will come all tumbling down again. Nehemiah knew that the city was going to be strong and prosperous. If the people were going to ever worship in that temple again, if it was going to thrive, the city had to be well populated to do that. They'd then be able to defend it in case of attack. Love where you live. Here's a church we call this gospel presence. Gospel presence. Some of you get real excited, and I do too, about HGTV and these ideas of like houses being renovated and reset and rebuilt, and, and the idea of I want to just love my house so much that I would never leave it. The difference with this statement, it says, I'm going to love where you live regardless of what it looks like, feels like. The response is, I'm going to love where God has placed me right now. Do you believe? Why has God placed you in the house that you're living in right now with the leaky faucet in the bathroom toilet that's about to fall through the floor? Why are you there? Because God has placed you there. Can you love where you live? Can you love the people that surround you? Why do you go to that school? Why did you select that college? Maybe it hasn't turned out the way you thought it was, but do you and will you love where you live? Why do you attend this church? How did you find us? Did you happen to just walk in off of the street? Did someone invite you here? Why is this church where you are located? Why has God allowed you to be here? Will you love where you are living right now? Love where you live. God has a reason for it. Love where you live. Here's the way that we talk about it as a church. And here I want to remind you of this morning. What does gospel presence really look like? It's saying this, who can I pray for strategically? When I am in my house, when I'm in my workplace, when I'm in my cubicle, who can I just be praying for? When I look over the edge of that cubicle, who is there? Who can I be praying for? Who, can, who am I aware of? And as I am praying for that person, who can I care for intentionally? Which neighbor needs assistance? Which neighbor needs help? What ways can I just be aware of what's going on? And then lastly, how can I share the gospel relationally? We believe that, that in prayer, that intentional prayer, that the realization that we're going to look out for the needs of others will, will then turn into a relational, real conversation about things of the gospel. I want to love where I live. Let's continue with our uh, ministry mindset mantras. Secondly, I never want to leave anyone behind. I never want to leave anyone behind. Will you turn over? It's probably a page or maybe on the other side of your Bible. Chapter 12, verse 27. There have been numerous names here listed, and, and part of this sermon series has been able to laugh at each of the speakers who we've tried to work our way through names, and, and there'll be a few of them this morning, but I'm jumping a bunch, and I know that. Chapter 12, verse 27. They've listed all the names of the people who are there, who love where they live. Verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to do what? To celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of what? Of thanksgiving, with music of cymbals, harps, lyres, and drum sets. The musicians also were brought together from the region, from Jerusalem, in the villages of the, here come some names, the Netaphilites from Beth Gilgal and from the areas of Geba and Emzveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates and the wall. They purified all of the people. They made sure that the Levites, the, the priests, the, the ones who were ministering and leading in worship, they made sure that they brought all of them in. 
And then their responsibility was to do what? To purify, to come in with open hearts to what God was going to teach them during this dedication time. They were purifying the people, the gates, the wall. They were going through the process of making sure that there was no one left out. I never want to leave anyone behind. This principle is deeply rooted for anyone who has served in the military. We just came through Veterans Week. Uh, Anyone who has served, they know that this is deeply rooted in the United States military, no matter what the cost. And those in uniform believe that no stone should be left unturned to go back and retrieve those, even those who have fallen on the battlefield. We will not leave any man, any woman behind so that they would fall into enemy hands. This is one promise that spurs soldiers to keep on fighting at times and fight even harder for their country, knowing that they won't be left out there on the edges. If we're going to have a ministry mindset, we will not leave anyone behind. The story of Desmond Doss, the movie Hacksaw Ridge was about this. Desmond is credited with saving 75 soldiers there. And if you've seen the movie, if you know the story, you know that he did it as a pacifist without carrying a weapon whatsoever. He just kept going out one after another after another into the hottest battle zone that there could be. At one point, even getting off of the stretcher that he was being carried out on to put someone else on that stretcher so that they could be taken back to safety, leaving no one behind. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells them the parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't the good shepherd leave the ninety-nine, go out into the open country, and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? If you're going to have a ministry mindset, we will have a mindset that says we will not leave people out there. We will not leave them behind. There's no stone left unturned. Why? Because God has loved and sent his son to die for each and every one of us each and every one of them. We will leave no one behind. I want to love where I live. I want to never leave anyone behind. I want to be, thirdly, a one-trick pony. I want to be a one-trick pony. Verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also signed two large choirs to give thanks. One was proceed on what? On top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders in Judah followed them, along with Ezra, Mushalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, also Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattiah, the son of Mechi, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, the son of the associates, uh, Shemaiah, Azrael, Miliel, Gileel, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. What are they doing? They're walking around the top of the wall. If you want to summarize the mission statement of Nehemiah, it was to do what? It was to go and rebuild the wall. Ezra, the other prophet of the day, the teacher of the law, he led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps to the city of David. They ascended the wall. Guess what? They're on top of the wall. They passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. This is a different water gate, just as a side note there. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. And I was with them on top of the wall, together with half of the people, past the Tower of the Ovens, the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshaniah gate, the fish gate, the Tower of Hananel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and the gate of the guard, they stopped. What did he do? They spent all this time rebuilding the wall. And at the dedication service, what do they do? Imagine if you were going to an opening ceremony of the Golden Gate Bridge. 
and they never sent a car across that bridge. How foolish would that be? That we're so excited. We finished the project. Look at this beautiful bridge. Somebody better go across that bridge. When he finishes the wall, he has this one trick pony, he has this one mindset. He says, if we're going to celebrate anything, if we're going to dedicate this thing, we're going to do anything, let's not only walk around the wall, let's put a bunch of choirs on the wall. Let's put as many people up on that wall as we can. Let's send them in opposite directions and demonstrate that the work that God has done, not only physically in the wall, but emotionally and spiritually in people's hearts, that has been changed, has been rebuilt and restored. Let's demonstrate that. He's a one-trick pony. In chapter 6, Nehemiah is working diligently at the wall, and he said this. He said, I knew they were scheming to hurt me, so I sent messengers back, and I said this. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down off of this wall. It says that he was asked four different times. And four different times he sends the message back and says, I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. He only was going to do one thing. If you're going to have a ministry mindset, you're going to have to be a one-trick pony. God has called you to something very specific. We each have a purpose of walking around this earth. And yours is different than mine, but it is your purpose, and you need to be doing it. How do I find out what it is? Beg God to give you that one purpose in life. Some of the spiritual giants that we know of. Billy Graham, what, was his, what would his one thing be? He would say, always, do you know Jesus today? And he would say, do you know Jesus? Every sermon, every message, every time he talked, what was he going to say? He was going to make sure. Do you know Jesus? It's a one-trick pony. Wes Aram, locally, I don't know how many of you know Wes Aram Jr., but his, or Wes Aram Sr., excuse me, the same type of thing. His mantra is going to be, how many kids accepted Christ today, this week, this summer, at summer camp? How many kids know Jesus? One of the authors that I read, Neil Cole, he's been speaking and teaching for a number of years. He's the ideas that come behind what we call the DNA. He uses the word divine truth, nurturing relationships, apostolic mission. We call that upward, inward, and outward and he's been saying the same thing for year after year after year. Why? Because this is his one thing. And if I see him five years from now or ten years from now, I would expect when he speaks that this is the thing that he's going to talk about because this is what God has placed on his heart, a one-trick pony. Dwight Smith is a, another writer, another leader. He says, whatever God's going to do, he's going to use God's people. He's coined the phrase that many of us use often. He says, to reach every man, woman, and child in the city, you'll need to mobilize every man, woman, and child in this church. If you're going to reach every man, woman, and child in this city, you're going to have to mobilize every man, woman, and child in this church. I got to hear uh, Dwight Smith speak. It was about 15 years ago. He did a, a church planning conference, and I, and I got to meet him again about five years later. And I, I told him how much his, his training, his teaching, how it meant to me, how much we were doing with it, and, and how we were working on this one project uh, in our church and utilizing it. And he, he said, that sounds really good. I didn't say that. Because I was talking about being a lighthouse in the community and how we had different lighthouses set up around the community, kind of some similarities to what we're doing now. And he said, I, I think you're doing some neat stuff, but I didn't say that. I was like, really? no, it changed my life. Look, here are my notes. He said, I didn't say that. 
He said, I know that the, every time that I speak, this is what I'm going to talk about. That every man, woman, and child, if it's going to be reached, is going to have to mobilize every man, woman, and child. Other than that, I didn't say it. <laughs> a ministry mindset. I want to be a one-trick pony. A mantra, number four. I want my song to sing his name. I want my song to sing his name. Verse 40, the two choirs, they gave thanks. They took their places in the house of God, and so did I, together with half of the officials. Those officials have names. Isn't it neat this morning? I wish that I could say this was part of the master plan that we had the choir sing this morning, and I had so many references to choirs in the passage this morning. That was not intended. That's just the way that God works. But to be able to demonstrate, uh, verse 42, in the middle of verses, the choirs, they sang under the direction of Jezariah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because what? God had given them great joy. They were in the midst of all kinds of trials. They had been working with one hand and fighting with the other hand and trying to get all these things together, and yet they have great joy. The women and children rejoicing. The sound of Jerusalem was rejoicing, could be heard far away. And at that time, there was men appointed to be in charge of the storerooms because people were bringing forth their first fruits, their tithes, their offerings, because they were bringing it all before the Lord because they wanted to celebrate and rejoice what God was doing. They performed different service of purification and the musicians and the gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. That was multiple times in this passage. I didn't cover all of them this morning, but the times that they just refer back to the way that, that David and Solomon taught them to lead worship. They followed that prescription. They also set aside a portion for the other Levites. These are the worship leaders, the pastors, the priests. The Levites set aside a portion for the descendants of Aaron. I want my song to sing his name. If you ever come into my office, I've got a lot of kind of memorabilia type of things. It's just trying to have a conversation piece. I've got some music instruments. I've got some things from when I served in the Marine Corps. And just people come in and they, it just conversation-wise, it kind of gets the ball rolling. One of the things in my office is a plaque that I was given when I got out after four years in the military, and it says, good luck, Wilson Fast, do a great job in all you do, something along those things. Well, Wilson Fast became my nickname because I was a very fast runner in, in the military. I was a, the head of the company, different things like that. But our, our unit would always go out, and we loved to play Ultimate Frisbee. I don't know if there's any Ultimate Frisbee fans in here. But I, I, I love to play that. And there was, whatever reason, there was a few guys who would, they'd say, man, you, you're fast. And this is what happened. You're fast, but you're not Wilson fast. And I made the foolish mistake one day, sprinting up the sideline. I caught the Frisbee, scored the touchdown. We won the game. Did you call it touchdowns? I can't remember what you call it. I looked back at the guy, and, he, and I said, well, you're fast, but you're not Wilson fast. Good luck next time. And I had to eat those words for the next two or three years. <laughs> the fact that it's printed on my plaque was not a nice thing. It was a dig. It was a punch in the mouth of you arrogant son of a gun. Who do you think you are? See, when we sing our own praises, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. When all we can do is talk about ourselves and how great we are, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Instead, what? I want my song to sing his name. 
I want my story to talk about his greater story. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, he says, not only do these people have to sing my praises, that if they don't, what? Even the rocks will cry out. Because we will all sing his name. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So in your notes, there at the bottom, Philippians chapter 1 says this, and it needs to be memorized, marked down. You need to realize the bigger story of what's going on here because next week we are going to finish the book of Nehemiah and you will see that this wall is a failure. Everything that Nehemiah put his whole life into, his story will end in defeat. And his storyline ends with the, the Old Testament is ending. And the Old Testament as it ends, it ends in need of a Savior. The solution has not been reached. The walls lie in ruin once again. And for if you think that you're going to live this mantra, if I think I'm going to live this mantra, if I want to love where I live, I want to never leave anyone behind, I want to be a one-trick pony, I want my song to sing his name, if you, if you etch those things in stone, if you say, I'm going to live by this code, I'm going to do these things, understand that you will fail. It's only through God's grace. <coughs> we need a Savior. Philippians chapter 1 says this, I thank God, here's Thanksgiving, every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. There's thankfulness and joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this. Band, you can come forward. Being confident in this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're not going to be able to white knuckle through this. We're not going to be able to, to just say, I, I'm going I'm to put the line in the sand. I'm going I'm to put the stake in the ground. I'm just going to live this way from here on forward. It's not going to work. And I don't know which one of your which one of your New Year's resolutions did you make at the beginning of this year that you can say this week when you come together for the Thanksgiving meal, I am so thankful that I knocked out all 10 of my New Year's resolutions. The only way, <laughs> thank you for that, yes. <laughs> Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we give thanks this week. We give thanks this week. We trust that you have something mighty that you are working in each and every one of us. Lord, we pray that there would be a mind shift, a mindset shift that would say, Lord, we cannot do any of these things in ourselves. We are thankful for the things that we go through, the times we look like an old turkey, because we know that you will complete the task. We know that you will do a good work in each and every one of us who call you by name. We don't deserve it. We praise you for it. And as we're about to sing, Lord, you are so good, you are so good to us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you.
We trust that your word has spoken this morning, Lord, that the life of Nehemiah was not wasted, the walls are down, but Lord, it, it still affects and changes each and every one of us. We thank you for him, for his leadership, and we trust, Lord, that your word is working in us again this morning. God is so good. He's so good to me. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.